At this point, if you'll turn uh, in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 John, we're continuing here in chapter 2, and the first uh, six verses of chapter 2 in 1 John. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God does abide forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word this morning. Um, pray that you would use it in our lives, that you would strengthen us and encourage us by it. Um, Lord, this is a, a challenging book uh, in so many ways, but also a very encouraging one. And so, um, yeah, pour out your Spirit this morning. Empower and strengthen me to proclaim your word with clarity. Uh, unite our hearts uh, across wherever we are this morning um, to hear your word, to receive it, and to be both challenged and encouraged by your Spirit in this word. We pray these things for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in 1996, there was a Ku Klux Klan rally held in, of all places, Ann Arbor, Michigan, not the, the most receptive place for a KKK rally. And there, something unexpected happened. And it wasn't that there were conf confrontations and violence. That was actually expected, I'm sure, at that point in time. But in particular, at one point in time, a middle-aged man with a Confederate flag t-shirt, a leather vest, uh, some tattoos um, on, um, was chased by a crowd of counter-protesters. And the situation got ugly quickly as the crowd mentality turned and the encounter turned barbaric uh, as people could hear uh, those who were counter-protesters yelling things like, kill the Nazi! He began to run but he was knocked to the ground. You can see him on the ground. He was lying helpless. He was being hit and kicked by these counter-protesters. And then 18-year-old Kashia Thomas, who was part of the counter-protest, she was there to protest the KKK being in town, realized that the actions that were happening, that the, the kicking and the hitting were not right. That shouldn't be done to anyone, no matter what their views are. And so she, a young 18-year-old black high school student, threw herself on top of the man. She shielded him from the blows that the counter-protesters were bringing. She risked her life for this man who came to, in many ways, probably protest her very existence. And the photographer who took these pictures said this, 
that she put herself at physical risk to protect someone who, in my opinion, would not have done the same for her. Who does that in this world? You know, that's a profound observation. Because who does that? It's why it's, it's such a powerful picture. And, and I think you've probably made the connection, but it's a beautiful reflection of what our Lord did for us. He took the blows that we deserved when we actually, by our sin, put Him on the cross. We wouldn't have done the same. We're the same people who yelled, crucify Him, crucify Him. Not much different than kill the Nazi. And not only did He take the blows for us, He advocated for us. And He does so constantly. He does that for His people. He's the perfect example for us of how we should both live and love. And when we see and grasp who our Lord is and what He has done and continues to do, one of the greatest things is is it reassures us. It gives us reassurance that, uh, that, that we, as His children, we are that. <laughs> Just quite simply, we are His children. We are deeply loved and deeply cared for. And that's some of what we're going to see this morning. In particular, in two areas, we're going to see our reassurance. We're going to see that we can be reassured even in our sin, and we can be reassured in our obedience. And so remember that, that, that John's desire is to shore up our belief, to give us reassurance, to warn us against false teachers. Today, he's going to deal much more with that reassurance, with the reassurance. So look at verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the heart of a pastor, isn't it? That's the heart of a pastor, of a shepherd, of a father. He's calling to his readers, he's calling them, my little children. Now that is not in the slightest bit a condescending tone. That is absolutely a display of deep love and affection and care. John is being gentle but firm and and caring in his oversight and is giving exhortation. Think about what he writes. In in so many ways, this is every Christian's parent's desire. We all long for our children to walk in truth, to to live in a way that is good and, and is pleasing to God. We don't want them to have to learn from sin. We know that it's going to happen. We know that they're going to learn from mistakes. At least we hope they learn from mistakes. We know they're going to make them, but we don't want them to have to learn that way. We'd rather them choose what is right. We want them to always believe in and trust in Christ. We want their lives to display evidence of of knowing Jesus, where their walk is consonant with their profession. The desire is that they don't sin, right? Isn't isn't that why we instruct them? Isn't that why we tell them certain things? Isn't that why you you told a younger kid, don't touch the the hot stove? Because you don't want them to touch the hot stove. We we do that. We, we, We want to protect them. We want to guide them. Now, John, though, is not some pie in the sky, wide eyed optimist in this whole thing. He has no con no no there's no conception in his work where he misses our fallenness and our sinful proclivity. He he knows this. 
He knows that all of us will sin. He's, he's not a proponent, I've looked at this before, of sinless perfectionism. He understands humanity. So he instructs. He instructs these things so that we may not sin. Now, what are these things? What's he referring to? I think in many ways, you, you just back up a few verses into chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. You know, think of what he's saying there. He's, one, he's saying that there's no darkness in God at all. God is light. There's no sin. And believers, as those in fellowship with the Lord, we are not to walk in darkness. Therefore, we're, we're not to sin. We're, we're to walk away from sin. But, you know, it might be helpful for us to answer, because I, I don't want to assume this. What is sin? What is sin? You know, if we say, let's, let's avoid sin, it, it might be a good idea to, to understand what sin is, to be on the same page. A good starting point would be our catechism definition, you know, that asks, what is sin? That sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So it's any way in which we, we don't conform to it or we transgress. We go against the law of God. That is sin in a very broad sense, and I'm positive that John would agree with that. However, John, I think, narrows it down. He focuses in three particular areas throughout this letter. I found this comment helpful when considering this question. Uh, One commentator said, unbelief, disobedience, and lack of love are inseparably intertwined in John's definition of sin. In John's language, to not sin is nearly synonymous with knowing God. For the person who knows God demonstrates the pistic, ethical, and agapic characteristics of redemption. So when he says pistic and, and ethical and agapic, he's talking about faith, ethics, and love. Faith, ethics, and love. Those are the areas that John concentrates on in this letter because we, we, we looked at last week that, that he, he wants us to, to have orthodoxy, to, to be orthodox in our beliefs, to have right belief, but he also wants orthopraxy. He wants us to work out our beliefs. He wants us to live rightly in the midst of it all. As I said earlier, John is a realist. You know, in many ways, you could just say he's a good theologian and he's a practitioner of people and of life. He knows we are all going to sin. Though we, we as believers, we, we, we ought to be striving to not sin, he knows that we will. We, we want to see sin not control our lives, but he gives us hope in the midst of this. Look at the, the continuing on in the text. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But if anyone does sin. Now, again, he's not saying here, you know, if this ever happens, you know, because, you know, it's probably never going to happen. But if, if it does, you know, no, that's not how he's going about this. This is basically him saying, he's letting his readers know that just so you know, when you do sin, there is something wonderful waiting for you. 
There's something wonderful there for you. There is provision, as Calvin said, made for miserable sinners that they may have God always propitious to them and that the sins by which they are entangled do not prevent them from becoming just because they have a mediator to reconcile them to God. If anyone does sin, we have a mediator. That's what he continues to say. He says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let those words sink in for a minute. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is the mercy of God. This is the mercy of God to us in the the midst of our sin. It's the mercy of God to us in Christ. The term used for, that's translated as advocate, is the term parakletos in Greek. Uh, Paraclete, you might have heard that before. Uh, uh, And it refers to one who speaks on behalf of another in the presence of the Father. Specifically here, it refers to Christ who is in the presence of the Father, who speaks and pleads on behalf of his children, his brothers and sisters. We read earlier from the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 55. I told you, you're going to want to remember that in many ways. Christ appears continually before God the Father and makes intercession for His people. He pleads the merit of His blood. I think of the, the, the last stanza of Joseph Hart's um, hymn that we sing a decent bit here, Come Ye Sinners. Lo, the incarnate God ascended pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Folks, this is the epitome of hope and comfort and encouragement. To know that we have one who pleads for us, to, to know that our sins are covered, that, 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 that should not only motivate us not to sin, but it should also humble us in our sin. It should humble us as we think about our sin. Listen, you and I, what this is saying is, you and I do not have to be our own advocates. There is a greater advocate. So, we don't have to defend. We don't have to defend. We have a defender. What we are called to, Isaiah 66, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Humble ourselves to tremble in many ways at the fact that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have that advocate. But why can he speak in our defense? You know, why can't we just, why can't we speak in our own or why can't somebody else speak for us? Why can he speak in our defense? Because two things, he's righteous and he's our propitiation. He's righteous and he's our propitiation. This is the basis of his advocacy on our behalf, which gives us great consolation to sinners. So he's righteous. What that means is he's the one without sin. He is God who took on flesh. He's the God-man who lived, died, and rose on behalf of his sheep, on behalf of sinners like you and me. 
And it is this one who is righteous and and who without fail acted righteously that now stands in the presence of God and advocates on behalf of all those who who, who have so consistently failed to act righteously. So the righteous one who never failed to act righteously now pleads before the Father on behalf of those who continue to fail to act righteously. That's amazing. Think of Hebrews 7, starting in verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The one who pleads on our behalf doesn't have to offer anything for himself because he's righteous and perfect and holy and innocent and unstained. He pleads himself and his life and his work on behalf of us. But not only is he the righteous one, he's also the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's a big word, isn't it? Propitiation. It's, it's not one that's used in everyday conversation. If you have the NIV or CSB maybe in front of you, you might read uh, that it says, he's the atoning sacrifice rather than propitiation. And the idea that the word conveys, that propitiation conveys, is that God's wrath against sin has been turned away. It's been appeased. It's been satisfied. God has been made propitious towards His people through this. And it's an idea that for some is hard to grasp. It's hard to come to grips with. In fact, in 2013, the Presbyterian Church USA, um, they, they wanted to include the song, In Christ Alone, in their newest hymnal. And, uh, but they, they weren't so keen on some of the song. And so they actually wrote to the authors, to Townend and, and, and Getty, and asked if they could change the line that reads this, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They asked the authors if they could change it to the love of God was magnified, which is true, but the response was no. Townend and Getty said, no, you're not changing the song. And Getty responded basically saying that the song is meant from the beginning to end to tell the whole gospel. And a representative of the committee came back and said, well, well, we, we don't actually have an issue with God's wrath. What we have an issue with is that it's satisfied by Jesus. <laughs> but here's the thing. It, it was. This is what Scripture tells us. It was satisfied in Christ. There's no more wrath for the people of God. It was poured out. When he cried out, it is finished, guess what? It was satisfied. It is finished. It was poured out fully on Christ at the cross. Now, I think we could even gain a clearer idea of propitiation if we looked at the Old Testament sacrificial system a bit. When God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt... An aspect of the covenant relationship that he set up was this sacrificial system. And at the heart of the system was the shedding of blood. 
was the shedding of the blood in particular of unblemished, unflawed, perfect animals that Leviticus 17.11 says to make atonement for our souls, to make atonement for our sins. J.I. Packer, um, in his little book, Concise Theology, it's a great book if you don't have it, that's a, that's a great one to have just as, as a good resource. He wrote, he said this, these sacrifices were typical, that is, types. They pointed forward to something else. Those sins were, in fact, left unpunished, Romans 3.25, when sacrifices were faithfully offered. What actually blotted them out was not the animal's blood, but the blood of the antitype, the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, whose death on the cross atoned for all the sins that were remitted before the event, as well as sins committed after it. So those, those sacrifices were meant for the people to look forward and, and go and realize, this, the, bl- the blood of this lamb can't take away my sin. It's the blood of the promised Messiah that will. It's the life of the promised Messiah. The, the death of our substitute was how the Father reconciled us to Himself, dealing with His own wrath that our sins provoked. And Packer continues, he said, the cross propitiated God. That is, quenched his wrath against us by expiating our sins and so removing them from his sight. The cross had this propitiatory effect because in his suffering, Christ assumed our identity, as it were, and endured the retributive judgment due to us, the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13, as our substitute in our place, with the damning record of our transgressions nailed by God to His cross as the tally of crimes for which He was now dying. Christ did the work for us. He is our propitiation. So what we have in 1 John 2, 2, and we also have that same word in in chapter 4, verse 10, is that on the cross, Jesus turned away, so he propitiated God's righteous anger and satisfied the demand of divine justice, the wrath of God. He turned away our punishment from us as our substitute. But you know, there's another sense and a further sense in which this word is used here, in that our sin was wiped away. It was, it was taken away. It was cleared away at the same time. Look back at, 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 at chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, you know, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It removes that. It, it clears it away. It's, it's as John the Baptist proclaimed. What, what did he proclaim? Remember when Jesus came walking as John's baptizing in the Jordan River, and he comes walking, and John says, Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that, I think, leads us to our next question, though. Because John writes, he's the propitiation, right? He says, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does he mean by that? Uh, what's the extent of this? Because I think it's, it should be easy for us who, who even have a, a fairly cursory understanding and reading of Scripture that, that, that this cannot refer to universalism. The idea that everyone is saved without exception by the sacrifice of Christ. Too many Scriptures make that clear, and so honestly, that's an absurd conclusion to come to from this, from this verse. Now, some would say that what it means is that Christ's sacrifice is is sufficient for the whole world, but it's efficient only for the elect. 
Now, that is absolutely true, but I would agree with Calvin and many other commentators who say, yes, it's true, but it's not what he's talking about here. You know, we've got to apply the the doctrine to the correct text. We've got to let the text speak, okay? So, what I think John actually intends by this and by the use of the whole world is that there is no other means anywhere to propitiate the wrath of God other than Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus is not a provincial deity. If you want your sins dealt with wherever you are in the world, it's not going to be Buddha. It's not Confucius. It's not Allah. It's not um, Joseph Smith. It's not whatever. It's not any of these other things. It's not your works. The only thing that will deal with the sins in the world is Jesus. That's it. This is so far from a statement of universalism that is actually lauding the beautiful exclusivity of Christ's death and resurrection. It's doing the exact opposite of what people accuse this verse of doing. They'll say, this is actually universal. No, it's not. It's actually saying Jesus is the only way. Provincial or geographical God has no power to deal with sin. So Jesus' death is universal in that aspect, meaning that it applies to any and every, no matter your your race, your sex, your location. His death is for all who repent and believe. So this is our first reassurance. Folks, if any of you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, who is our propitiation. And knowing that truth enables us not only to to deal with our sin, but it enables growth. As we humbly come face to face with our sin, we fight against it. We fight against the sin. We don't fight against the fact that we have sinned. We don't try and deny it. We don't try and defend it. We don't try and do all those things. We actually come before the Father because we have an advocate who pleads on our behalf. We don't hide. We don't pretend. We come to the mercy, come to the mercy seat in Christ. But then there's another reassurance that John gives, and that's the reassurance that we gain in obedience. So verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You notice in these verses the word know is used multiple times. John is giving a test of reassurance, of of assurance. He is explaining to people how they can be assured that they actually know the Lord. He writes that we know, in the present tense, that there, you know, that's the the confidence in the present. From that, he says that we have come to know Him. Here is a reference to a past experience of God that continues on into the present. And then in verse 6, we read, by this we know, which points us forward. And surrounding all of that is a pretty simple test. We can have assurance that we truly know God. How? If we keep His commandments. And so by the inverse, we aren't very assured that we know God if we don't keep His commandments. 
The idea of obedience is central to knowing Christ. It's how we demonstrate that we love Him. John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The sheer fact is that those who say, and, and he moves, you notice he doesn't say we, you know, if we say, like he did earlier in these parallel sections that we looked at last week, he now says, whoever says, if anyone says that they know him but don't keep the commands, again, John calls that person a liar who does not have the truth in him. You know, in one way, as you think about that, and you're like, okay, so this has been a problem in Christianity from the get-go. <laughs> People claiming to know him, but not actually obeying, not actually following his commands. Brendan Manning, some of you, um, you know, maybe I'll get a smile out of, out of Jen in the back, going back to uh, DC Talk here. The beginning of the song, What If I Stumble, there's a quote from Brendan Manning. And he says this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, I don't know if I agree completely with Manning that that's the greatest single cause of atheism, but this is something that not only that the unbelieving world finds unbelievable, but doggone it, the church should find it more unbelievable. It should be unbelievable in our lives that we could, could walk out the door and, and not know. And, and, and not continue to do. It's, what does James say? It's like a person who looks in a mirror, walks away, and forgets what he looked like. That's not how we're to live. The point that John is making in these verses is that knowing God and having fellowship with Him has to be expressed in how we live. And in particular, as I mentioned, John is concerned in three main areas, in our belief, in our faith, in, in right belief, in ethics, in, in how we live, in how we work it out. Are we living according to the law of God, to the, to the Ten Commandments? Do, do our lives reflect the Sermon on the Mount? Do we reflect the ethics of Scripture? And in our love, are we loving others? 1 John 3.23, and this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. I think there's a further question, because many of us could be sitting here and go, oh, I don't keep the commands. I'm in a world of hurt. So what does it mean to keep His commandments? To what degree is considered keeping is it 50% of the time? Is it 51? I'm just past half. That's not the question, really. John doesn't believe that anyone can fully satisfy God's law. It's never happened. Just Jesus. <laughs> okay, just the God-man. But John is looking for, as, as Calvin wrote, he said this, is looking for such a strive according to the capacity of human infirmity. Listen to that comfort right there. Strive according to the capacity of human infirmity, knowing that we're weak, to form their life in conformity to the will of God. For whenever Scripture speaks of the righteousness of the faithful, it does not exclude the remission of sins, but on the contrary, begins with it. So he's saying, strive, but 
We know that there's going to be sin. We know it's going to be there. It, in fact, our relationship with God, our striving after obedience, starts actually because we've had our sins forgiven and continues in that day after day after day. It's a striving. I say it in our new, new members class. We're looking for direction, and this is what God is looking for, is a direction of our life, not perfection. So then in verse 5, we have this contrasting conjunction that comes, but, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Now that's an interesting statement right there. How are we to, I think one of the first questions you get in a lot of these is, how do you take the phrase, the love of God? Okay, is, it, is this objective in the sense of, our love to God, our love for God? Or is it subjective in the sense of God's love to man? Is, which the love of God could be either of those. And I think, I think you could argue both ways fairly well. But I, I really think that, that the subjective fits the context and, and the letter most clearly here. If you look later in chapter 4, we read that in 4-7, for love is from God. His love. And then in 4.12, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. That one really hits home here with that, with, with this verse. And then 4.16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So I think it seems fairly clear that, that, that God is the source of and, and, and the giver of love, and that helps us determine the meaning here when He says the love of God is perfected in us. And also, the idea of being perfected is passive. There's, there's an intention there. It's about reaching an intended goal. So the point being, God in Christ has loved us by redeeming us from sin, and that love has a transformative goal in the life of a believer. So when he says here, okay, when he says, by this, uh, or but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. There, this transformative effect here is that God's love, the, an intention of God's love in our lives is transformation of our lives. That's an intended effect. That transformation then is shown in how we believe and live and love in our faith, in our ethics, and in our love. That's where it's shown. It, and, and, and to get to that point, uh, to, to see growth, takes abiding in His Word and abiding in Him, as the rest of the text says. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. You know, that's when the love of God is perfected in us as believers, as we walk as Christ walked, as we follow our example. Not, not that we just stick a bracelet on our wrist that says WWJD, but that we walk as Jesus walked, that we, that, that we pursue Him. This doesn't mean that the believer is perfected, okay? To say that the love of God is perfected doesn't mean that we're perfected, but what it means is that for us, God's, the, the, the goal of God's redemptive love has been reached, it's been achieved as it's shown in our love to others, in our life, in our ethics, in, in our faith, and in our love. It, it, that's where we see that it's, that it's shown in our abiding in Christ, in our walking in the way He walked. 
He's our example. Christ is our advocate and our example, and the way he walked was sacrificial, wasn't it? Walked in a very sacrificial manner. He gave himself. He took up the cross. Literally, he took up his cross, and he gave his life for others. So I think the questions for us are how are we doing at seeing the love of God perfected in us? In our faith, or are we continuing to grow in our belief and our understanding of who He is and letting that shape our lives? And so, therefore, letting it shape our ethics, how we live, how we act, how we do things, and our love for one another and our care for one another. Are we living by faith? Folks, this text and this letter in so many ways is meant to give us reassurance. And even though this calls us to greater obedience and, and to stuff that is, can be daunting and can feel daunting, like I've, you can start to get to that, I need to do this, because it, it even says we ought to walk in this way. But just before it, we have that whole beautiful promise. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. You know, our hope is that we just continue to take steps forward. Take our steps forward. Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Living a life. Seeing the love of God working in us. To think of walking in the way of Christ is daunting, but it's also beautiful. Imagine a world in which the churches walked in the way of Christ. In which the people in the churches walked in the way of Christ and rested in Him, where when there's issues in the church, we don't defend ourselves because we have a defender. We're gentle and meek and humble, and we work through things. We forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. We do that in our marriages, in our parenting, at work, driving, the grocery store, wherever. We live in that reality that we have an advocate. Humbles us to know that you don't have to plead, you don't have to defend yourself, you don't have to self-justify because you have one who has justified you and who pleads on your behalf. And that actually motivates us to want to walk like one who would do that to want to live like Him, to, to be like our advocate, our Redeemer, who pleads for us, who works in our lives. So folks, let us, let us rest in that. Let us rest in that. Let us strive to know it. Let's take refuge in Him. Let's, let's behold our God. Behold our King. Behold the, the wondrous mystery of the God-man who took, uh, who took our sins upon Himself at the cross, satisfied divine justice. There's no more wrath for believers. You don't have to fear that. Rest in peace. Rest in the truth. Rest in the grace of that. And trust Him. And be reassured that you are His children as you continue on knowing that you have an advocate and as you see your life more and more conformed to the image of the one who gave His life for us. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this word this morning. 
Lord, we ask that you would encourage us by it, strengthen us in it, and grow us more and more to be like you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.